Hello and welcome to week two of Upended, where we're looking through the book of Acts and picking out scenes along the way that show how the early church upended the world of their day for good. And we're going to draw lessons from that to see how God might use us in order to do the same kind of thing, to upend our world for good. In the uh, in the early church times, as in our times, there were all kinds of divisions and factions and all kinds of opportunities to separate into us and them mentality. And uh, we see examples of that. And when, what we will see is when you look at the early church, they were not immune to that. There were all those same temptations to divide up into camps, factions, and different groups, and to be in a oppositional mindset. And so the kinds of things that we see today in our political realm, in the world, and now even in a, our approach to church and our approach to the COVID crisis that we, the world is facing, all these different approaches and us and them mentality is not something that's unique to our time. But if we are going to be used by God, to make a positive impact, then we're going to have to figure out what is we can unify and rally around. Because as Jesus taught, a house divided will not stand. So this week, as we go into week two, the title of today's message is this. It's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Last week, we talked about how we have to hold our assumptions loosely if God is going to use us profusely, if he is going to be able to do with us the things that he wants to do and accomplish the things that he wants to do through us, then there are some assumptions that we have to hold on to loosely. But once we release those assumptions, then we got to ask the question, well, what are we going to hold on to? And that's what today's message answers, that if we hold, what we have to do is hold Jesus tightly and hold our assumptions lightly. Hold Jesus tightly and hold our assumptions lightly. And this is uh, not something that is new to us. It's something that the early church had to do, and that's what we see in today's passage as well. So we're going to look at the next scene in the book of Acts, which is found in Acts chapter 1, verses 12 to 26. I'm going to read from the New Living Translation, and I hope that you will be able to follow along. Acts chapter 1, verses 12 to 26. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, a distance of about a half a mile. When they arrived, they went to the upstairs room of the house where they were staying. Here are the names of those who were present. Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas, son of James. You'll notice that all of the same disciples that had been a part of the 12, except for Judas Iscariot, is, are included here. 
It says they met together and were constantly united in prayer, along with Mary, the mother of Jesus, several other women, and the brothers of Jesus. During this time, when about 120 believers were together in one place, notice there that it's not just the 12, now 11 disciples, but there was a larger group of disciples that were following Jesus and who were gathered together. Uh, Peter stood up and addressed them. Brothers, he said, the scriptures had to be fulfilled concerning Judas, who guided those who arrested Jesus. This was predicted long ago by the Holy Spirit, speaking through King David. Judas was one of us and shared in the ministry with us. Judas bought a field with the money he received for his treachery. Falling headfirst there, his body split open, spilling out all his intestines. Luke is adding a little background and extra information there about what happened to Judas. The news of his death spread to all the people of Jerusalem, and they gave the place the Aramaic name Akeldama, which means field of blood. Peter continued, This was written about in the book of Psalms, where it says, Let his home become desolate, with no one living in it. It also says, Let someone else take his position. So now we must choose a replacement for Judas from among the men who were with us the entire time we were traveling with the Lord Jesus, from the time he was baptized by John until the day he was taken up from us. Whoever is chosen will join us as a witness of Jesus' resurrection. So they nominated two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, also known as Justice, and Matthias. Then they all prayed, Lord, you know every heart. Show us which of these men you have chosen as an apostle to replace Judas in this ministry, for he has deserted us and gone where he belongs. Then they cast lots, and Matthias was selected to become an apostle with the other eleven. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word, and I pray that you would speak to us through your word. We can see how in the early church, the disciples held tightly to Jesus and held everything else loosely. So I pray that you would speak to us and help us to cling tightly to the important things and to be able to let loose of things that are less important. And I pray that as a result of what we talk about here today, that you will be able to use us more effectively more widely for your glory and for the good of ourselves and others. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So to provide a little bit of context, we looked at this last week that Jesus, before he ascended back into heaven, gave his marching orders to his disciples. And as part of that, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, he says, you, talking to the disciples, will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere, telling people about me everywhere. So they have a mission, and we talked about how a witness is just somebody who tells what they have already seen. And so they're going to tell the story of Jesus. And now Jesus has ascended into heaven, and the disciples have been told to wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit, and that's what we'll talk about next week. We'll talk about Pentecost 
and the, the sending of the Spirit. But now they are, according to Jesus' command, waiting until that happens. And what we see here is that as they are waiting, they are holding on tightly to Jesus in the midst of a bunch of things that could separate them and divide them because Jesus is that unifying presence for his disciples. Jesus is that unifying presence for his disciples. Here we see that all of the disciples and the larger group of disciples were all together. They all met together and were constantly united in prayer, along with Mary, the mother of Jesus, several other women, and the brothers of Jesus. And then right before this verse, it has listed out the 11 remaining disciples. And it gives a few notes, like it noted, notes that James is the son of Alphaeus, Simon, who's the zealot, uh, Judas, the son of James, to distinguish him from Judas Iscariot. And what we see here is that there is a tremendous amount of diversity. Jesus was really the only thing that could draw all of this group together. He is the unifying presence for his disciples. They were together. They were united in prayer. And it's hard for us to appreciate how amazing that is. There's a book that I've been reading called Love Over Fear by Dan White Jr. And it illustrates and points out how amazing it is that this group of followers of Jesus were able to be together because otherwise they would have been very polarized and divided. You see, much like in our time, there are lots of different uh, factions and divisions within the people of faith and within the larger political sphere. Uh, he outlines the different sides that you will notice or read about when you are studying the New Testament times. You have the Pharisees, which are who are often portrayed in the New Testament as the bad guys, but they were meticulous observers of the law. They were really trying to work their best to do the things that God requires. And in fact, they went beyond that, and that's where they got into trouble sometimes, by just adding more and more laws. There was another group that is not mentioned in the New Testament, but is still from that first century. These are the Essenes who were also very concerned about purity and ritual, and that led them to be isolationists. They completely moved out of society and lived on their own in order to try to be holy and pure. We also hear about in the New Testament the Sadducees, which were a Jewish sect which formed a political movement in the first century. And they were often in conflict with the Pharisees because they had different uh, views of scripture and what was authoritative. They denied the resurrection of the dead, activity of angels, and a host of other supernatural things. You could think of them as kind of the almost religious secularist, uh, and they were very concerned about political power. And uh, then there was another group called the Zealots, and they turned their 
religious understanding of Judaism into a political agenda. And we're seeking to incite rebellion against the Romans who were occupying the Holy Land at that time. There was an even more radical group called the Zakari, which was a branch of the Zealots. And they thought that God could and would use violence to liberate the oppressed. So you have all of these different political uh, movements going on. And then you had racial divisions between uh, Gentiles and Jews, Jews and Samaritans. You also had divisions based on male and female distinctions. And so you had all of these things going on, all of these things that were seeking and, and being used to polarize and divide. And the question became, when you were encountered Jesus, is whose side is he on? And the funny thing is that he found something that would distinguish him from all of them. All of the people in these different groups, when they encountered Jesus, would often want him to take their side because they were convinced that they were right and God was on their side. But he studiously determined not to become their puppet. Listen to what Dan White says. To the Pharisees, Jesus will not abide by the strict application, their strict application of God's law. To the Sadducees, Jesus defies their belief in a non-supernatural world. To the Essenes, Jesus embraces being with uncleanness. To the Zealots, Jesus will not use his power to overthrow the tyrannical empire. To the Zakari, Jesus did not use violence to accomplish justice. Jesus is stretching our imagination beyond the polarization box we're stuck in. If you want to know about the Jesus movement, look at its strategic start when Jesus gathered the first disciples. You see, he used all of these different people, drew them into his circle, but he did not subscribe to any one of their political theories, nor was he going to be used as a puppet to accomplish their agenda. He, in each way, showed how they were off and redefined it as allegiance to Jesus and to, if you were going to be a part of the kingdom of God, you would have to leave behind some of these assumptions in order to embrace what Jesus was doing. So what was it that allowed these groups, these people who in any other circumstance would never even associate with one another, let alone be a part of a group together, if they had been in the same room, there would have been fights and yelling and perhaps even bloodshed, except for one thing, the unifying presence of Jesus. Because Jesus transcended all of these things and whatever their allegiance and viewpoint was previously, they supplanted that first allegiance to and with Jesus. 
And so that's what was going on there. So the reason that they were able to be together, the reason that they were united in prayer, the reason that all these disparate groups uh, and viewpoints could gather together under the banner of Jesus, the reason that the women as well as family members who had otherwise rejected Jesus up until the resurrection, the reason they could all get together is they replaced their primary allegiance, whatever it was, with Jesus and were willing to uh, put their other agendas and viewpoints and aspirations secondary to Jesus. They held Jesus tightly and their assumptions lightly. The second thing that I want you to notice in this passage is that Jesus is all also the interpretive key to the scriptures. See, it's all about Jesus. They made their primary allegiance to Jesus, and they also understood everything in the Bible, the scriptures, with the key of Jesus, that he was the key to understanding it. You see this in the way that they handle what was going on with replacing Judas. It, uh, Peter says the scriptures had to be fulfilled. What he's doing there is reflecting something that was going on already by this time, very early in the church. You see it throughout the gospel records. They would look at the story, remember the story, remember the experiences that they had with Jesus, and then look back on the Old Testament scriptures, their Bible, and see how there were constant foreshadowings, foretellings, echoes of what would happen to Jesus. And it was a well-established pattern even by this time to see that the key to understanding the scriptures was looking at them through the context and the key of Jesus. And in fact, Jesus said the same kind of thing. In John 5, 39, it says, you search the scriptures because you think they give you eternal life, but the scriptures point to me. He's saying, whatever you are hoping to get out, it's not just a book of principles. It's not just a good story. It's not just a, a, a handbook to life. It is a guidepost that points you to Jesus. And so they already were seeing the echoes of the Jesus story in, the, in the, their scriptures. And so when they're talking about Judas betraying Jesus, Peter is able to say this was written about in the book of Psalms. And uh, several echoes of the Jesus story could be easily picked up within the Psalms of David. And so then they began to use that as a way of interpreting what they were going through right then and what needed to be done. And so he, he uses a couple of examples from the Psalms to say that uh, the, the place that Judas had, uh, had filled was now empty and that they needed to 
replace him so that there would be a full complement of 12 apostles. And notice that they are now apostles. Disciples are learners, apprentices. Now they are apostles. They are going to be sent with the message of Jesus. And again, because the whole of Scripture they understood now was pointing towards Jesus. And so they hold on to Jesus tightly when it comes to interpreting the scriptures. And then their previous assumptions about what the scriptures meant and how to understand them, they held lightly. And maybe you can relate to that. Maybe you thought of the Bible as just kind of a guidebook for life that has some interesting stories and some good principles to follow. But what the whole point of the scriptures is, is it's supposed to point you towards Jesus, not just good principles, not just interesting stories, but it's supposed to bring you to faith in Jesus. And then look lastly, when you talk about the way that Jesus is central to the focus of the way the early church understood everything, the last point is that Jesus' bodily resurrection is the defining event of history. The defining event of history. When the apostles were deciding who was going to be, who might be candidates to replace Judas, they say, well, it has to be somebody who has the whole experience from the time that Jesus was baptized by John in the, uh, in the Jordan all the way to the point where he ascended into heaven when he was taken from us. And that person has to have seen it all, experienced it all, so that they can bear testimony. They can tell the world what they've seen and experienced. And then after summing up the whole of Jesus' ministry from the time that he revealed himself and began his public ministry all the way to the point where he ascended into heaven, look at what it says in verse 22. From the time he was baptized by John until the time it was, he was taken from us, whoever is chosen will join us as a witness of Jesus' resurrection. They were told by Jesus, you are going to bear witness to me. And now the qualification, the key qualification is that they've seen all of Jesus' ministry, but what are they going to do? That new apostle is also going to bear witness of and to Jesus' resurrection. You see, if Jesus had not been raised from the dead, then it wouldn't have mattered what your political philosophy was. You wouldn't see people rallying around Jesus. When he died, they would have went and gone back to their old way of doing things and their old way of looking at things. Because what are all of those different philosophies? They're Okay, this, they're, 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 they're a way of looking at the world. This is what's wrong with the world. This is the solution to what's wrong with the world. And this is what needs to be done as a result. Jesus was offering 
a, an alternative narrative to what was wrong with the world, how it gets fixed, and what needs to be done. For example, for the Pharisees, it was probably the reason that things are wrong, the reason that we are under Roman oppression, the reason that God has allowed all of this judgment to come is because we have not been faithful, we have not kept the law, we haven't been doing the things that we're supposed to be doing. That's why all these bad things are happening to us. So what needs to be done? We need to start doing the things that God told us to do. And in fact, we're going to go beyond that. We're going to set all of these different unique minutiae that we have to follow because we want to make sure that we're doing the right things. And then God will bless us. And that's how things are going to get fixed. Well, Jesus comes along and offers an alternative, not just to the Pharisees, but to all of their different stories and philosophies. Certainly, there were some things that were, uh, in most cases, that could be borrowed or could be applied, but Jesus didn't adopt in any political or religious philosophy in whole. The kingdom of God was something totally different and something new. They had to drop their assumptions about what was wrong, what needed to be done, and what, how to fix it, and what you needed to do to cooperate with that. Jesus replaces that with the gospel of the kingdom of God. Ultimately, it's all about Jesus. What has gone wrong? People have sinned against God, and the wages of sin is death. And no matter how many sacrifices are offered, no matter how many good deeds are done, there's nothing that can break what is, that can fix what is broken on the inside of every single one of us. And so in order to pay for the sins that have already been committed and to purchase life, give the gift of life to people, Jesus had to go to the cross. He had to offer himself as the one perfect sacrifice to pay the penalty for our sins. And then he would be raised from the dead to show God's stamp of approval and also as an as a, uh, affirmation that new life is available. What do we need to do? We need to say yes to Jesus. We need to embrace God's plan for the world in Jesus. It's all about Jesus. And so if you thought it was just about doing some good things or learning some good principles, or if church has been kind of a, a social club, you know, place where you can meet friends and get together and do some fun stuff and get a little bit of encouragement, you're missing the bigger point because ultimately church is about Jesus. And so you accept the gospel, you become a part of the kingdom of God when you say yes to Jesus. And so I'm going to encourage you, if you haven't already done this, if there's never been a time that you can look back on and say, you know, for sure I know that I said yes to Jesus, that I know that he died for the sins of the whole world, but I want his death to count for me 
personally. I know that he was raised from the dead, but I want to experience that new life that will last into eternity with him. In order for that to happen, you must say yes to Jesus. And so I'm going to encourage you. You can let us know. If you're watching on the Church Online platform, you can click that button that says raise hand where it says I commit my life to Jesus. If you're watching or listening at any other time, we want to be able to celebrate with you and resource you for your new life in Christ. So I'll encourage you to text the word yes to 603-225- 2550. That's our church number. And when you do that, we'll be able to celebrate with you and resource you for your new life in Christ. In all of this, as I've been talking, as I've been, as we've been working through the different things in the world of the first, of uh, the early church that could have divided them, the things that they would have gone back to, if not for the resurrection of Jesus, the things that in any other setting would have divided them into fighting factions because they held to Jesus first and foremost. They were able to let go of those assumptions and hold and cling to Jesus tightly. And that's going to be my challenge for us as a church because we are living through a phase, a time, circumstances where there are so many things that are seeking to divide us and different approaches to politics, to the COVID crisis, to to church and how to respond to all these different things. And I believe that we're playing into the enemy's hands when we allow these things to divide us and cause infighting and we start fighting those battles rather than the bigger picture and the more important mission of bearing testimony to Jesus, focusing on Jesus, unifying around the gospel of Jesus. It's not that those other things aren't important. It's that Jesus is the most important. And so this is my challenge to you because I believe that if that God really does want to use us to make a positive impact in our world. And if we are a house divided constantly by infighting and nitpicking and arguing and complaining, we are going to be completely ineffective at what Jesus wants to do with us. And so I'm going to challenge you to shift the story to Jesus, to shift the story for to Jesus. I have made a, a very distinctive shift a couple of years ago in, for example, my uh, social media strategy. And now I don't engage in some of these other stories. Again, it's not that it's not important. And I hope that people will argue for and passionately embrace what they believe is right. However, when you make the ultimate issue of right and wrong, your perspective on some of these other issues, I think it takes away from the story of Jesus and makes it seem like 
if you don't agree on some of those other things, then you're, then you are, I think what happens is you're going to be ineffective at telling the story of Jesus. It's a, it, it requires wisdom. It requires discernment. It requires grace because not everybody is going to approach it in the same way. And I get that. However, I think that we can use our opportunities in whatever comes up, whatever the topic is, to shift to tell the story of Jesus. Because it's far more important to me to focus on and tell the story of Jesus, to bear witness, as we saw in the scriptures, to what he has done and what he has done in my life. Because if, if people can rally around Jesus and the gospel of Jesus, that will unite us in a way that nothing else can. And when we extend grace and understanding and uh, express humility about some of these other things, I just think it's really interesting that Jesus, of all the different options that were available to him, embraced in whole not a single one. That tells me that whatever my political philosophy, whatever my different approach is, that I could be wrong. And there are certainly parts of my approach that are wrong. And so I need to approach others with that degree of humility. And I want more than anything for them to get the story of Jesus more than anything else more importantly than anything else. So let's take the opportunities when we're having conversations, when we're encountering people who think differently than us to shift the story to Jesus. Maybe we'll find common ground in Jesus and maybe God will use us to introduce Jesus to people in the world around us. My hope is that we will hold on to our assumptions lightly, with humility, with grace, with passion, yes, but with humility and grace, but ultimately to make the most important thing that we're holding on to Jesus, being his witnesses, interpreting the world around us through his eyes and seeking to be faithful to him above all else. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I, uh, this, is, this is a minefield. This is a tricky conversation to have. There are so many different perspectives and so many challenges, but ultimately, Lord, I believe that you want your people together, united in prayer, and holding tightly to Jesus above all else. So show us what that looks like for us individually, for us as a church, for your people, the larger, broader church, and help us to be good witnesses, faithful testifiers to what you have done, who you are, and what you have done in us, for us, and through us. Lord, it's our desire that you will upend our world for good 
and that you will give us the privilege of serving that purpose, of being used by you to accomplish your purposes. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.